I don't know about in your experience, but in my experience, uh, I find that very few people ever have the time or the money to do things right the first time. I don't know if that's been your experience, but suddenly when that doesn't work, everybody can come up with the time and the money to fix it the next time around. It's weird how that works. The plumber comes over and says, you know, hey, we're going to have to excavate this entire drain pipe and we don't know what's all wrong until we get in there. And everybody's like, well, can't you just solve it with a plunger? I mean, that's what I bought it for. And they're like, no, we, we need to do a hefty amount of work. And very expensive and you go to the mechanic and they start using language that you've never heard of and they say we're going to have to replace this entire fuselage on this vehicle and is that a part of a car i don't know i'm not a mechanic people said the fuselage is not something on the vehicle whatever can you fix it with duct tape that's the question because i want to fix it at duct tape driving at interstate speeds And the reason it's important for you to think about is because God has actually given you some promises, some ways to do things right the very first time, uh, and he's going to deliver on those promises, but the vast majority of people choose to accept something less than the life Jesus paid for, because it's faster, it's cheaper, it's easier, and very few people want to make the investment that God has called them to reality is there's only two types of people in this world uh, those who trust the promises of God and those who do not and so in an effort to help us understand these promises that God has made us we started a series of talks last week called 2020 vision the goal here over these four weeks together is to help you see 2020 style the 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 only perfect way of seeing 2020 style the plans and promises that god has made for your life i believe that 2020 could be the best year of your life but it's going to take some sacrifices on your part it's going to take some trust on your part and it's going to take you believing and trusting in these promises that god has made you uh made to you and you have to start doing things not your way but rather god's way It's a problem, because as I already mentioned, we all feel like we know better than the plumber, and we know better than the the mechanic, and ultimately we feel like we know better than God. Now, nobody is ever going to actually say that out loud, I know better than God, but we don't have to. Our lives say it for us. And so here's what you need to understand moving forward. God has made four promises that I can take you to over and over and over again in Scripture. And sometimes these promises stand by themselves or isolated. And other times, like in Exodus 6 or Matthew chapter 28 specifically, all four promises are listed together. And the big deal about these is these promises are consecutive. They build on the promise before them. You have to understand the first promise to get the second promise, to get to the third promise, to get to the fourth promise. So today is monumentally important because almost every Christian that you're going to come in contact with will stop on promise number two, on this promise. And it's not just me saying that. A study just came out a couple years ago that said 87% of Christians have no idea what their spiritual gifts are. You might be in that camp. 87% of people are not living the life that God has called them to. They're wandering around aimlessly, just trying to figure things out, spinning their wheels, never fulfilling and never comprehending the plan and purpose that God has for the life. Sure, they'll go to heaven. 
They'll likely even have a good life here on earth, but they'll never have the fullness of life, the freedom that God has promised them. So listen to me. I don't want that for you. More importantly, God does not want that for you. That's why He made these promises to you. This idea that God is just some bully in the sky waiting to strike you with lightning when you're not listening and punish you and keep all kinds of good, fun things from you because how dare you enjoy life? Look right at me. That is a steaming pile of garbage. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. God is not trying to keep anything from you. You understand sex was God's idea, right? That wasn't Adam in the garden thinking to himself, I wonder what would happen if I... And God's off making a sandwich somewhere. You realize the first miracle that Jesus completed was turning water into wine at a party one night. So, like, these are good gifts from God. Currency is God's idea. God does not get angry when you make a lot of money and have a nice house and have a nice car. Like God wants you to experience fullness of life and He's created good gifts to you for you to enjoy. Uh, there's just some ways, some boundaries, some guardrails, some borders that God has created for you to operate within in order to experience all of these good gifts the way they were intended for you to enjoy them. And so let me remind you of these four promises and then let's drill down on promise number two. Again, the first uh, time all of these four promises are listed together is in Exodus chapter six. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. Go ahead and grab it. Meet me in Exodus six. Genesis, Exodus is how your Bible will go. You need the big number six. Uh, You should know that in Exodus six, there's a few million people living in slavery in Egypt. And God sends a guy named Moses to give them these words from him. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, you might be wondering, okay, how do these promises apply to me? Uh, Because I ain't in slavery. I'm certainly not in Egypt. This is America, right? The greatest country of these United States. Come on, somebody. And so, how? well, I need to remind you, John 8, 34, Jesus says, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, which we've all done, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So the reality is you actually are in slavery. And the promise that, that God makes, uh, promise number one, is that he's going to rescue you from slavery just like he rescued the Israelites from slavery. And it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with what Jesus did for you. But this gets where it gets kind of weird because uh, it says, uh, I will bring you out of slavery and then I will deliver you from slavery. It's a bit repetitive, God kind of confusing. How are you going to free somebody after you've already freed them? It's the idea that uh, even though you're not a slave, you're still thinking like a slave. 
even though you're freed from sin, you're still living in response to sin. God needs to change your thinking. He's saved you. That was the easy part. All that that required of you is to believe. But now that you're believing, God says there's a way you need to start behaving. And we need to change that. And uh, actually, this is part of the reason God set up all the laws that you read about in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And people are like, how can God set up all these rules? We think about the condensed version, the Ten Commandments. But the reality is uh, God set up over 600 laws that he expected these people to follow. And the reason being because he had rescued them out of Egypt. Well, now he had to get the Egypt out of them. They had been just for the last 400 years indoctrinated by a culture. They weren't thinking like the chosen people of God. They were thinking like the culture around them. No different than how most American Christians think. We're indoctrinated by our culture. Most Americans don't understand being set apart, living a sanctified life. Sanctification, that's what that word means, by the way, to be set apart. And this is what God has, has called you to. So first is salvation. That's promise number one. Again, it has nothing to do with you. But then comes promise number two, sanctification. And hear me, it has everything to do with you. You get to choose how you uh, behave. Now certainly God ordained it to work a certain way, but you get to choose if you're going to follow the promise of God. I'll show you this promise in another place besides Exodus. This is Ephesians chapter 2. It says, God saved you by His grace when you believed. Not when you changed, not when you cleaned yourself up, not when you quit cussing and going to rated R movies and all that. No, God God saved you when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that you've done. So nobody can boast about it. That's why. Again, that's that's promise number one. Pretty simple. You believe what God's done, you're saved. Now watch this. In response to your belief, you have to show some results of that. This is promise number two. Completely different promise. So important that you get this. Philippians 2. Dear friends, you always follow my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Promise number two. Salvation leads to sanctification, not the other way around. You can write it down like this if you're taking notes. If you're not a victor over your sin, you're going to become a victim of your sin. Promise number two, if you're not a victor over your sin, you're going to become a victim of your sin. I'll say it like this. Every sin has a gotcha. If you're not careful, it's eventually going to get you. I'm calling my message today. Fix your one-third. And here's why. It is my belief, and I think I can make a strong biblical case for this, that you as a human being are composed of three parts. There's a mental slash emotional side of you. Use those terms interchangeably. Part number one, mental, emotional. Or part number two, your physical being. And part number three, there is a spiritual side of you. Now, for sure, nobody is going to argue with me when I say that there's an emotional slash mental side of you. Pixar just made an entire feature-length film about it. Plus, everybody would agree there's a physical side of you. 
which is what we're looking at this morning. Everybody can see the physical side of you. However, I think it might get a little bit of pushback when I say that there's a spiritual side of you. However, even the most hardened of atheists would say that they've had an experience that was deeply spiritual. Birth of a child, having a good meal, a good conversation, a funny joke, an intimate moment with a loved one. Those are all spiritual happenings. uh, Those things are engaging you in a way that's hard to describe. Listen, a way that no part of creation besides you gets to experience. You're the only one with a soul. You're the only one with three parts. Furthermore, I don't think anyone would argue that these three parts uh, of you often work in tandem with one another. Even if you're doing something physically active, you're engaging the mental side of you too. You ever have somebody tell you, oh, it's all mental. 90% of this is mental. Uh, just got done running a marathon. When I was training, people would say, uh, oh, it's all mental. You can do it. You should know that's a lie. Okay? It's not. When I was done, the thing that hurt the least was my brain. Okay? Everything else hurt a lot. And so it's not all mental. But I understand, in fairness, what they're meaning by that. They're saying that your your body is going to hurt and it's going to tell your brain to shut it down as a safety me- mechanism. And you need to override that mechanism mentally because you're capable of accomplishing way more than you realize. It's what allows people to run crazy amounts of distances and complete Ironman triathlons and have babies with no medication. Come on, somebody. That hurt. Not that I know. I mean, I just saw it, but, you know. Uh, and so you've you got to tell your brain uh, to override your body's pain. Uh, the bottom line is you don't want your body making decisions for your future. Your body doesn't care about uh, you. It, takes, it cares about taking the path of least resistance, right? Why'd you quit the gym? Because it was hard. Why can't you eat healthy food? Because it's hard. Why can't you quit smoking, biting your nails, uh, whatever it is for you? Because your body wants what it wants when it wants it. Your, your body doesn't care about your feelings. Your body doesn't care about how dirty this is going to make you feel. Sleep with whoever you want. It feels good. Do whatever you want. It feels good. Eat whatever you want. Furthermore, you should have learned by now that you can't trust your emotions to make decisions. You can't trust your feel. The worst advice you can take is follow your heart. How many good times has that worked out? Your feelings don't care about your body. This is why many people can find their lives in a complete train wreck and their emotions are all kind of out of whack. Uh, Because their emotions are saying, I don't care about your body. I'm depressed, so I'm going to end it. Ultimately, what I'm trying to help you understand is the way you need to start making decisions is with the third part of your composition, the part of your life that cares both about your mental well-being and your physical well-being. You need God's Holy Spirit making your decisions. You need to fix your one-third Here's the good news, 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, somebody help me, there is freedom. Freedom. Isn't this what everybody's looking for? Freedom? Isn't this why you chase after trinkets and toys and relationships and physical things and money? You're looking for freedom. 
You're looking for something that's going to fulfill you. As sad as most people could probably quote that verse to me, but very few people are living it. Matter of fact, I would argue that few people even realize this is only the second promise that God has given you. There's still two more. Freedom's only 50% of the equation. So what I think we need to do with the rest of our time together is twofold. First, we have to answer the question, why? If, if, if this is the promise of God, freedom, why aren't we living it? 87% of us. And if, secondly, we need to figure out how. Well, how do we live in freedom? Because if you aren't a victor over your sin, you're going to become trapped as a victim in your sin. And why are most people victims? Because of pain, pride, and provocation. You might want to jot that down. Why are most people victims in this life? Why aren't people living the plan and purpose that God has for them? Pain, pride, and provocation. This is why this year in this country alone, 2,000 churches will close their doors. This is why the average Christian can justify in their mind only giving away 2% of their income because they're living on half a tank. Pain, pride, and provocation have created in them a victim's mentality. They're essentially paralyzed into a profitless and captive life. You need to recognize this in your own life because you can't correct what you're unwilling to confront. And most people are unwilling to confront pain because pain hurts. We take tremendous measures in our lives to ensure that we don't live a life of pain. And legitimately so. Again, pain hurts. People have hurt you. Worse yet, you've hurt you. I don't think you can say with complete impunity that all the decisions you make are super awesome. So we need to avoid pain. Plus, there's pride. And people become victims because, well, you want people telling us how to live? Who are you to tell me how to live? This is my truth. I'm living my truth. You heard that recently? I don't need you coming in here and telling me you. And, and except the problem with that is C point number one of pain. You've hurt you just as much as anybody else has hurt you. You got this pride in your life and it's making you become a victim. And finally, there's provocation. We are provoked by temptation and we often succumb to those promptings. We know what's right and we want to do what's right. The problem is when you're living at 50%, you're going to end up with doing what's wrong. One out of two times. Because you're only 50% of the way there. So we need to spend some time analyzing how these things can be solved. But I, I have to make sure you're hearing me when I say that salvation is in an instant. When you believed... Ephesians 2. When you believed God saved you, that was instantaneous. You didn't have to check a card. You didn't have to raise your hand. You didn't have to walk down an aisle. And even if you did one of those things, it's my contention, God saved you in your seat. When you believed. And it happened instantaneously. Dude's getting crucified on the cross next to Jesus. Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He believed he was saved, and he got to see the promise of God. But, and this is a big but, but this next promise, promise number two, is absolutely 100% contingent upon you. And it's a lifelong journey. And it's a lifelong process. 
what's so compelling is that God promised us, even still in this journey, what's so remarkable about God, remarkable about Him, is that He's promised you the power and the desire to victory. Isn't that what Philippians 2 said? That God's working in you to give you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him? Now, again, the reason the vast majority of Christians never see victory and get stuck in promise to is because of pain, pride, and provocation. And what you have to realize in every one of those cases, you have an enemy who is using one of those things, pain, pride, or provocation, in an effort to keep you out of promises three and four. Because promises three and four are where you're going to change the world. And so, well, who are who are my enemies, Pastor? How are they using these things? Uh, well, first, I just had some uh, annoyances come up just this week, trying to keep me out of my promises and destiny, to take my eyes off of this message, because if I can get distracted, and if, if things can rile me up and get me mad at Laura, or the kids, or in any one of these different experiences, then I know I'm not going to fulfill my to my ability, the power that God has placed me in me, and instead of God speaking to this message, trying to create in you life change is going to be me speaking, and God brought somebody here to find freedom. Come on, somebody. And so I got to preach in the power of God so that I can live out promises three and four. And so you need to know your enemies like I know my enemies so that I can rebuke my enemies and get past it and live as a victor instead of a victim. And the three enemies that you have in this life are you. You make some bad decisions. Two-thirds of your uh, composition, your body, and your mental, emotional status, well, that's trying to lead you astray. And, and it doesn't want you changing the world. Your body doesn't want to change it. What benefit is it to your body and your emotions if you change the world? And culture, that's your second enemy. Culture doesn't want you changing the world. If you change culture the world, it's changed. Why would it want to get changed? Especially for the good. No, it's about itself. And so now people are, are living in such a way where they don't do what the Bible says, which is deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Him. Well, that doesn't sound like any fun until you realize that's the only place that you can find freedom and joy and passion and purpose and fullness of life. And your third enemy, the devil, absolutely doesn't want you changing the world. That's why Scripture says that he's like a roaring lion roaming the earth, looking to find somebody to devour. He needs you stuck in promise too. He needs you at 50%. Because who are the ones the lions go after? The sick ones? The ones at the back of the pack? The ones who are by themselves? The baby ones? Yeah, yeah the devil needs you wounded. He needs you fixated on everything else that everybody else is doing and that they've done wrong to you. And he needs you as a victim because you're easy to devour. Devil will devour you when you're a victim. So let's get practical. How do we tap into this power that God has promised? How do we fix our one-third and become victors instead of victims over our enemies? First of all, if you've never have been, number one, you got to get baptized. You want power in your life? Then you need to be baptized. Now, again, this is post-salvation, right? Salvation was promise number one. 
Baptism does not save you. This is promise number two. This is how you would get equipped with power to change the world. Something powerful happens when you're baptized. I can show you this in scriptures, Romans chapter 6. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may have new lives because of this power of the Father that He's promised us. Just so you know, this is why we practice full immersion baptism. Because it symbolizes going from death under the water, buried with Christ, to life. We're raised to life. We have the power, the new power that God has promised us. Again, I'm trying to teach you how to walk in power, how not to be a victim, how to be a victor. And according to Scripture, the power of the Father comes upon you when you're baptized. It's right there. Now, two questions that I often get are, first of all, I was baptized as a baby. Pastor, should I be baptized again? Because I was baptized as a baby. I would say absolutely yes. Because if you'll study this idea of baptism carefully, you'll see over and over and over again in Scripture that people believed and then were baptized. I cannot take you to a Scripture that says we baptize infants. Now, again, I would argue that as a baby or as an infant, you didn't have the cognitive ability to discern for yourself this idea of belief in Jesus. And so you should probably uh, be baptized again as a believer doesn't mean that baptism of infants is wrong. There's nothing sinful about that. I would just argue that you should be baptized as a believer. The other question that I get uh, is, I was baptized at another church. So do I need to be baptized here? I would argue it depends. Because some denominations and some traditions teach uh, that you have to be baptized in order to belong. Maybe you were raised Catholic. And to be part of the Catholic Church, you have to be baptized into the Catholic Church church. Um, So you you should, uh, if that's your story, I would argue that you should probably be baptized again because baptism isn't about belonging. Baptism is about believing. And it's about wanting everybody to know that you're walking in newness of life, not newness of church. It's not what baptism is about. Uh, now, if you were baptized out of another church and understand that it was done so with a profession of faith, that uh, I'm letting everybody know that I'm a believer, then no, I don't think you need to be baptized again. I was telling them in first service that baptism, again, doesn't save you. This is promise number two. Baptism is like a wedding ring. My wedding ring doesn't make me married. It just lets all the girls know that I'm married. I'm wearing this for Laura, all right? I'm just keeping everybody away from me, you know? This is good news for her. Somebody asked me after service, like, is that why you bought Laura a really big ring to keep the, the men away from her? And I said, no, I gave her three kids to do that. Come on, somebody. Like, she got to take them everywhere she goes. That's good enough. It's ridiculous. But uh, this, the simplest thing for you to think about when it comes to baptism is ask yourself this question. Do I still feel like a victim or do I feel like a victor? And if the answer to that is, I'm still feeling like a victim, you should prayerfully consider and and pray over this uh, idea of baptism. You arguably should be baptized. For sure, if you've never been baptized, that's step number one, towards freedom. 
Uh, you need to be baptized. Promise number two, after salvation, sanctification, be baptized. Secondly, you need to join a group. Get baptized, join a group. You want to have power. You want to fulfill this promise. You want to see promises three and four where you start changing the world. You need to join a group. Say, Pastor, I don't need any more friends. Why do I need to join a group? Because 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just, God, to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from unrighteousness. But James 5, 16 is equally important. This is so huge. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. That is to say, God forgives you. God's people help heal you. This is a two-step process. Confess your sin to God and confess your sin to other people. God's going to forgive you. Other people are going to heal you. So if you're stuck in sin, you're a victim, might I suggest that the relationships you have in your life, the people that you put in your life, they are the key to your victory. I need you to know that this is our uh, mission and goal here at New Anthem for our groups. It's to help set you free. This is about freedom and healing, you being in a group. Now, we know, fully understand, that you're not going to confess your sins to anybody that you don't think is safe or trustworthy. And so we've designed our groups. Uh, The win for us is that you create a significant Christ-centered friendship. That's what we want for you in the group. And this is why they're only 10 weeks long. People say, well, you can't have a significant Christ-centered friendship in 10 weeks. I know, that's why we want you there for all the terms. But it's also why if you haven't created a friendship, you can get out. You're not signing up in blood. You're only committing to 10 weeks and say, you know what, that wasn't the group for me. I'm going to find a different group. That's a win for everybody. So I'll explain it like this way. This is our discipleship process here. In today's world, people are always like, oh, we need to go deep, Pastor. Let's just go deep in this. And I don't even know what that means. But second of all, if you want to go, what could be deeper than studying the Bible together, opening up the Word of God, praying for each other, confessing your sins, sharing a meal, creating friendships, having fun? How much deeper can you go than that? What I know for sure is I can't be that for all of you. But you can be it for somebody else. Amen, somebody. And so this is how we create we create discipleship and going deep. If I'm reading the Bible correctly, specifically Ephesians chapter 4, it says my job is to equip you for ministry. God has given the prophets, preachers, teachers, evangelists, me, for the purpose of equipping the saints for ministry. I'm not the pastor, you are. I'm a preacher. I'm an equipper. Uh, And in small group, I'm a pastor. Well, that's for a select group of people. And that's why God trained you to be pastors for everybody else. In in case you're curious, we have a lofty goal here at New Anthem of 110% involvement in small groups. What? How is that even possible? Who's setting the budget around this place? Not me, I can tell you that. But I'm serious, 110%. Why? Because we know you have friends outside of New Anthem, and we want them to be part of your group, because that's where freedom and life change happens. How could you not want that for somebody else? And so we want people outside of New Anthem to be part of our groups. And listen to me, that's happening. We have people who do not come to this church who are joined up with our small groups because they want freedom just as much as anybody else. Hashtag winning. Okay, that's what we're doing. 
110%. That's what we want people participating in our groups. And men, if I could address you specifically for a second, more specifically, married men, because I always get, well, I don't need, I got my Chiefs game, my Cowboys game. I got the, you know, the boys down in fantasy football. I don't need no friends, Pastor. Uh, you, how, I don't need to be a part of a small group. You might be factual in that. You know who does? Your wife. She needs the group. So quit being a selfish coward and go to the group. And let your life change and see what happens. It's maybe sexist of me to say that, but women need more friends than men. So figure it out. We'll help you do that. Which brings me to point number three. If you're going to claim all the promises of God, you need to get baptized, you need to join a group, and finally you need to commit to church membership. Commit to church membership. Now what you cannot hear me say is that we need you at New Anthem as members. It's not what I'm saying. Bible says I'm going to be judged twice as harsh by how I lead the members of New Anthem. So it would be better for me for you not to become a member, right? Because I don't need all that twice as much judgment. So you should just sporadically come here and never participate. And if I understand it all correctly, I'm not going to be judged for you, you know, by your actions. I got to be judged for everybody else. So uh, please don't hear me say, I need you as a member. I also read that you're not going to experience the same rewards in heaven as the people who are the members of the family of God because you never joined the family. That's what's at stake for you. So sure, you'll, you'll get to heaven. That was the easy part. Belief. That was promise number one. The hard part's interacting with everybody else. The hard part is discerning freedom and changing the world. The hard part is being part of a solution instead of being part of a problem. might be helpful to point out that God never talks about you in individual terms. God always talks about you as a flock. You're one of the sheep in the flock. He talks about you as being a member of the family. He, he says you're part of the body. He says you're part of the fellowship. It's about interacting with everybody else. I would argue the reason the vast majority of people don't ever join a church as a member, pride, I don't need a church telling me how to live. Pain, church hurt me, pastor. I don't need that in my life. Provocation, the devil doesn't want you part of the family. You're easier to devour when you're by yourself. We got strength in numbers over here. But again, those are tools for our enemies. Those are not reasons for your response. And I'm not condemning anybody if that's been your response. I get it. Believe me. I hated the church for the vast majority of my life. Had seven pastors in 11 years. Hated my time. Those are tools the enemy is trying to use to get you to be by yourself. And so I'll wrap everything up like this. I wonder... If you couldn't start thinking about church membership like a gift, like like we receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus, and the moment that happens, it's instantaneous, we become part of the body of Christ. So now, why would we let church be about our preferences and our desires? That's so self-serving. Imagine if that was Jesus' attitude. He would have never went to the cross. No, instead, our Savior... As he's being punched in the face, people are saying, prophesy, Jesus, you're a king of the world. Who hit you? 
Think about it. As the hands that are nailing him to the cross, the hands that he created are nailing him to the cross. He doesn't think about himself. He says, no, you're, you're worth it. Your new life is worth this to me. I feel like I can deal with any of the inconveniences and matters of preference that are not my style. Because if Jesus can do that, who am I to say, look, there's no perfect churches, there's no perfect pastors, no perfect staff people, there's no perfect volunteers or church members. So the greatest thing that you can do as a believer and follower of Jesus is to participate in the unified mission of God to serve as Christ first served us. This isn't about New Anthem. This is about your abundance of life. That's what's at stake for you. Your freedom. So listen to me. I want everybody to look right at me because what I'm about to say is incredibly important. You can be saved. You can go to heaven. And you can never make a difference. And that is not the call that God has for your life. I'm going to talk about 2020 vision. Seeing clearly the plan and purpose for your life is to be a part of the family. It's to serve and make a difference. So you can commit to God's purpose and start walking in freedom and joy. But it's entirely up to you. Promise one is of God, salvation. Promise two, he promises to give you the power and the desire to get out of promise number two into promise three and four, which we'll talk about in coming week, into, salva- into sanctification and into freedom. It's all up to you what you do with it. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you for this free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus, the promise that you have made that we have a way to be put right with you because of him. God, thank you for being to have nothing to do with us, that Jesus lived a perfect life so we wouldn't have to. Thank you for saving us in an instant of belief. And thank you for giving us the power to work through this promise. Thank you for the victory that we can have in your son, Jesus. And God, right now, I'm just praying for this divine moment here and now. God, do what only you can do. Fill this place with your presence, with your spirit. Help us leave here knowing that we are victors over this life. Our enemies can't hurt us. God is for us. Who can be against us? We're not being victims anymore. The moment we walk out of here, we are one step closer to your son, Jesus. We're one step closer to you. We have power in your name. And I'm speaking life over marriages and finances and addictions. And God, I'm praying for healing because of who you are. And I'm speaking power into this place. And as you continue to pray and think about these things in your own life, this is contingent upon your belief in promise number one. You can't have victory without salvation. So I just want to give you a chance to, in your own heart, say, I believe in Jesus his power to forgive my sin because he rose from the dead thank you for saving me thank you for making me new 
God, we speak life over this place. Help each person to walk out of here today encouraged, knowing that they are to make a difference, living out your promises. We're 50% of the way there. God, help each person come back to understand how they can make a difference in the weeks to come. We ask all this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.